episode 104 of Greater Than Code. I am here today with Janelle Klein. And I'm here with my good friend, John Sawyers. And I am here, and I'm happy to introduce an episode all about Sam Livingston Gray. Yay! Finally, we cornered him. Sam Livingston Gray has been a dad since 2008, a Rubia since 2006, a Portlander since 2001, and a programmer since at least 1998, a juggler since 1988, and a human since 1974. He's keenly interested in writing software that makes other humans' lives easier, in making technical topics easier to understand, and in helping increase the number and variety of humans in technical spaces. Welcome, Sam. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. And I'm so glad that you all ambushed me with this so that I didn't have to be all anxious about it for like three days coming up. Oh, it's man. a clever ploy. <laughs> Thank you. I have a question. Before you were a human, were you a jellyfish? Um, Not directly, no, but I came from jellyfish, or at least part of me did. Ooh, which part is that? That would be my brain and your brain, too, and all of the other uh, signaling mechanisms we use inside our bodies to coordinate them and feel things and laugh and cry and, you know, all that good stuff. Does it give you jellyfish superpowers? I wish. No, actually, as it happens, jellyfish just freak me the fuck right out. Uh <laughs> Because <laughs> they float around in the water, and they're blobby and squishy and slimy, and they can hurt or even kill you, and they don't have brains, so they don't even know they're doing it. They don't have brains, but yet we have them in our brains? Yeah, yeah. So this is a really random factoid that I ran across at some point, that essentially jellyfish, as I understand it, this may be apocryphal and I may, may be spreading falsities, but we'll go with it, that uh, jellyfish were the first to evolve neurons which they needed to coordinate the way that they move, right? Because, you know, a jellyfish is just a bunch of, like, clear cells that have sort of, they can expand and contract, and if they all expand and contract in the same pattern, then the whole thing can sort of go floof and move itself through the, through the water. In order to coordinate those, they developed these neurons, which are these horribly slow chemical signaling things. But they worked well enough, and... Because evolution is fond of things that work just kind of well enough and then adapting them, including them into other things that may also work well enough. We still use them today. Interesting. Are they so solely chemical? And did we add in the electrical signaling later on? No, I mean, I think they're, they're electrochemical, but... Oh, okay. Yeah. So the electron goes through a single neuron, but then there's a chemical interface between that, that and the next one. So we tried to get you to talk about your superpower, and then you totally steered us off course into this jellyfish thing. So <laughs> I blame <laughs> Jessica for that. <laughs> okay, so if you don't have jellyfish superpowers, what is your human superpower? So my superpower used to be being able to spot actors who were on Babylon 5, even if they were only on like one episode under heavy alien prosthetics. But I think a lot of those actors are no longer working, and so that superpower has kind of become useless. But really, I think uh, I think my superpower is making connections between weird things. Such as Babylon 5 and people in real life. And jellyfish and the way we treat each other as people. And yeah. No wonder you're on this show. <laughs> I mean, really what I'm saying is my superpower is ADD. <laughs> it has some advantages. I'm sure glad it has some. <laughs> Taking that, like, what connections? I mean, you've got this meta process of being able to make connections, like seeing the relationship between jellyfish and thinking and these chemical interfaces, which you described like software, right? 
Mm-hmm. So if you were to describe the superpower that you have of making connections between all these weird things, Babylon 5 and jellyfish and people, what is the magic between all of those things? Let's see you work your superpower. If anything, I would just say that uh, this is maybe another property of the way that we organized our, our jellyfish cells together in that brains are weird and the architecture in which we store our memories is extremely weird and we still don't know how it works. And so for me, I make a lot of weird associations between specific facets of things that just don't necessarily make sense to other people. Uh, I make a lot of intuitive leaps and it, it drives my partner nuts because she'll say something completely random and it happens to have like three words in common with a, with a movie quote. And so I'll just say that movie quote and she's like, really? What? <laughs> And it, yeah, my brother and my dad and my stepmother and I, we we all can have like entire conversations in movie quotes. It's great. Like one of the things you mentioned with this specifically in terms of quotes that stuck out with me is that it's really slow, but it works well enough. And working well enough is enough of a process to drive evolution. I definitely see that pattern in software. What are the lessons that we can learn from the uh, evolution of jellyfish that we might be able to apply to the software world. So there's probably a, a really interesting vein of insight around like test-driven development and and tests as a fitness landscape for your code, and then also customer requirements as a fitness landscape for your tests. And maybe we can come back to that. But what I'm but what I really think might be more interesting is the idea that evolution produces organisms that exist and thrive in a specific environment. And you take an organism out of one environment and put it into another, and sometimes it can adapt, and sometimes it's just so highly specialized that it fails. But what this means for me in terms of software is that you cannot judge a piece of software objectively, and I'm using heavy air quotes here. You have to judge a piece of software within the context of the business that created it or the organization or whatever else. It's not all business software. That's just what I write. So that's what I think of first. You can't judge it outside that context of the organization, the people who wrote it, the other constraints that they were under. What I guess I'm saying is that there is no good code or bad code. There's just code that works well enough that somebody was able to move on and do something else more or less suited to purpose. Yeah. And arguably, probably some things could be better suited to purpose than they are. But, you know, unless you're looking at a piece of software where everybody left the project at the same time and it was abandoned, you know, then it's an artifact, really. <laughs> but you still have to judge it within that context. Because software really is is living. Yeah. Yeah. And if the team has abandoned it, then it's a zombie if it's still running. <laughs> yeah. Karl Popper says that every theory exists in a particular problem environment and you, you can widen theory to mean solution. And so software is a solution to a particular problem environment and organisms are this way too. Organisms are solutions to a particular problem environment, which is their ecosystem. And then when you have a piece of software, if it's an interesting one, then it changes its own environment And even if it doesn't, its environment changes anyway. So then you get a new problem environment, and then you have to come up with new solutions. Mm -hmm, Because what worked before doesn't work now. And that goes along with the sort of environment itself evolving outside of the organism, you know, on its own, and then having to adapt and and keep. It's that back and forth 
influence process. Right, because each each organism changes the fitness landscape for everybody else around it. Can you break that one down, fitness landscape? I've heard you say it a couple times. Oh, yeah. And I'm, I'd love to hear you unpack that one. Okay, yeah. So I want to come at this from the perspective of evolutionary algorithms. And the way that those work is that you have some piece of software that is able to generate candidate solutions to a particular problem. For example, the the neighborhood that I live in is uh, not part of the overall city grid. It's this weird diagonally shaped thing with lots of loops and circles. Some years ago, there was a person who had a bike ride around the neighborhood and the, the ride was scored so that every little segment of alley or street that you rode down, basically from one intersection to another, would get you one point. But if you backtracked, if you rode across the same segment more than once, you would lose a point. So this is, you know, for those of us who see things this way, this is obviously a graph traversal search problem. So I was fascinated by this and I sat down to encode it. Um, and I didn't realize just how many intersections there were in my neighborhood, but there's over a hundred of them wow. uh, just within the bounds of this one exercise. So I started writing some code to find optimal paths without, uh, you know, that had as minimal backtracking as possible. And then a buddy of mine took a look at my very iterative code and he wrote just this really quick thing that would generate two random paths and he would breed them. Essentially, he would take segments uh, where those paths overlapped and generate other paths from those and keep the ones that yielded the highest scores. And that's basically what an evolutionary algorithm does is it generates candidate solutions to a problem. It evaluates them for their fitness. You know, you have to have a fitness score that you can use to evaluate a particular solution. It takes the solutions that it has, it takes the ones with the highest fitness score, and it uses those to randomly generate others, and so on and so on. And it's this very iterative process, and it can go for you know thousands of iterations uh, before it finds a reasonable solution. But when I talk about a fitness landscape, what I really mean is the way that the fitness scoring works. In my simple example, we have the neighborhood that has a fixed number of segments, and there is probably a theoretical maximum score that you can achieve, but that doesn't change. And when I say a fitness landscape, what I mean is that you're doing this, this single process in the context of a whole bunch of other things that are also doing that same process, and they're all interacting with each other. Is it about defining what is better? Right, except that there's no objectively better. In the reading that I've done about evolutionary algorithms, one of the sort of key difficulties is in properly defining that fitness landscape or the fitness function that that can determine like what the successful end result is. And that once you get to a certain level of complexity, like I would like to evolve, you know, Groupon from, you know, first principles, uh, like defining that fitness function is even more work than actually just building Groupon, uh, you know, as you would normally <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of what we're good at as humans, and we don't realize how hard it is, is defining better. Like, I watched a talk the other day about playing with neural networks, and neural networks are coming up with names for ponies. And it's easy to write the neural network compared to picking the names that are funny for the slide. Yes. 
Yeah. So like you can make the computer come up with a bunch of random pony names, but who picks the ones that are funny enough to put on the slide? Hold on. I need to get some examples now. For our listeners at home, there is a site called AIWeirdness.com, which has a bunch of these hilarious examples. And it's exactly that. It's somebody feeding a uh, neural network a corpus of like thousands of examples of a thing and then letting it generate its own. Uh, a little while back, there was a hilarious one about pumpkin spice beers. Okay, Jessica, you ready? Blue cuss. <laughs> Raspberry turd. <laughs> Pocky Meyer. Yeah. Uh, anyway, anyway, this that that fitness function is really, really hard to write. Thinking about jellyfish, though, I mean, we were just we started this discussion with using organisms as a metaphor to think about evolution of software or evolutionary processes of other things. So if we think about the fitness function that drove the evolution of neurons, the signaling mechanism. How would you describe the fitness uh, landscape of the evolution of neurons? Well, those things worked well enough for jellyfish. And I, I haven't looked into this well enough to be able to trace, you know, where neurons went after that. But another example that I can give you is um, another one that I, that I read about a while ba back, which was uh, our eyes. Uh, fish were the first creatures to develop eyes as we think of them in ourselves. And they're, they were really well adapted to functioning underwater. And when creatures evolved that started going up onto land, the eyes didn't work as well as they did underwater, but they still worked. They still provided a competitive advantage. And so evolution never wants to throw away anything that even sort of works. So it we just keep using these eyes that originally evolved to function well underwater. And there's been some adaptation since then, but still, it works well enough and it keeps going. That's weird because I hate opening my eyes underwater. <laughs> right? I'm sort of thinking about your magical powers and how we can how we can get it out and trying to come up with questions that I know are a little hard, but they, they might come up with a flash of insight or you might do something like that where you just sort of shifted gears and brought up eyes because it's a, it's a connection. It's a piece of the puzzle. And so when I, I'm thinking about this arrow of better and what that fitness function looks like, there's sort of a definition of good enough to be useful, of having utility. Yes. So we've got the evolution of a model and the evolution of a technology in the abstract sense that has utility in solving a survive and thrive problem within the context of a particular environment. So it seems like that arrow of better within a particular bounded context is the nature of a fitness function. And then when you breathe these things together, it gives you the opportunity to try out different solutions to the environment problem and potentially find different peaks. Yes. And I'm so glad you said that because this absolutely leads into uh, one of the problems that evolution has, uh, which is this idea of what's called a local maximum. So really a fitness landscape is is probably this like 50 dimensional space that we can't possibly actually directly conceive of. But if we take things down to a really simple two dimensional example, 
right? Like the number of points that you would get for writing a particular route around my neighborhood. You can figure out some way of plotting the fitness function and you can have like some curve that goes up for a while and then it goes down and then it goes up a little bit higher and then it goes down again. If you wind up on the first part of that curve, evolution is really good as, at doing what we call hill climbing, right? It will explore left and right of whatever point it's at and it'll find out that, hey, over to the right here, we do a little bit better. So it'll move up that way and it'll move up and, and move up until it reaches that inflection point where it any change in behavior will cause it to become less fit for the environment that it's in. So let's say you find yourself on a hill in this fitness landscape and you've got little valleys on both sides. And on one side, it goes down to the sea, but on the other side, it goes up to this huge mountain. You as a human can look at that and you can say, I'm going to consciously make the trade-off to go down for a while and then back up so that I can get higher up if, if height is my goal. But evolution will not ever be willing to make that trade-off. Because it can't see that far. Right. Evolution is working with uh, individuals that the real fitness test for them is, do they survive long enough to reproduce and to reproduce and compete well enough that they can continue to do that. And that's one reason that it helps to have several different populations and then interbreed them. Kind of like you, when you make leaps between two very unconnected ideas and you interbreed them and explore a whole new piece of the solution space that probably is completely irrelevant, but now and then is brilliant. <laughs> or, or, or if you cloned like 10 of me and brought me up in different environments. <laughs> Then we would get 10 completely weird jumps into interbreeded solution space. Exactly. And that actually comes back to one thing that's useful about evolutionary algorithms as opposed to, you know, the actual evolution that produced us, at least within the bounded context of a single planet, which is that with evolutionary algorithms, you can start again with different random inputs so that, you know, if you think about it as, again, that two-dimensional curve, you vary X and see what Ys you get to. Okay. If you start a bunch of different times, you start out at different parts of the hill, uh, and maybe one of them will find the actual maximum. Which happens in nature and historically when you have just many different populations that eventually get to compete on a population level. Uh, to be depressing about that, uh, now that humans are globally interconnected, we really only have one population of us. So if this one doesn't work out, we're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I hope we don't turn out to be our own best predator, but it is kind of looking that way. One thing that's interesting about humans in particular and the level of self-awareness we've reached, like if I think of myself as a bounded context, just me, myself, and I, the memories in my brain, here I am on the top of a hill. I've got valleys below. I can look across the landscape. And I can see other people on different hills that I can have relationships with. And of all things that I found that have helped me to leap, you know, make a leap to run down the hill that I'm on and, and check out another mountain in life of, of following my passion and dreams and, you know, uh, which sometimes uh, causes lots of change in your life. Anyway. I'm thinking about the things that have pulled me to other hills, and it's been through connections with others that become a catalyst for making those discoveries, for allowing 
evolution to take place in the context of a lifetime, in the context of the bounded context (laughs) of me, myself, and I. I think it does get to the point of where the evolution is switching from the physical, you know, like evolving new limbs and new senses to the social and the emotional where it can change much more quickly and it can go between individuals and in within an individual lifetime and still have that same benefit of combining interesting disparate things that can allow much more explosive and dis- discontiguous growth because you've got exposure to all the other interesting individuals in the world. I don't remember the exact quote because it, I actually haven't watched it for too long, but there's a thing from Babylon 5. Hey, hey. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Uh, where one of the characters says that we are the universe splitting itself into pieces to understand itself. Yeah, that comes up in Alan Watts, that the universe is one whole that is playing hide and seek with itself. <laughs> nice. nice. Yeah, I wanted to go back to one of the things that, that you had said, Jess, earlier when we were talking about fitness functions and how like it's like you can build some things that are that will give you all the options, but then picking the best options is something very human. Uh, I think this is something that Sam you mentioned on an earlier episode where there are like physical brain disorders that disconnect emotions from input into decision making. And when that happens, decision making becomes nearly impossible because you have no way to add any valence to a value of should I have the appointment today or the appointment tomorrow. If they're equally objectively useful, there's no like, well, today's a little bit easier. Um, And so you can without that emotional input into decision making, which is I think something that humans do uniquely well, you sort of get this broad, undifferentiated, equally objective thing that you're trying to choose between, but can't really make that choice. That is such a wonderful segue. Thank you. Because it gets into how humans make decisions at all, right? How do humans make decisions? At all. Badly. (laughs) No, we actually do an amazing job. Seriously. No, it's true. Like, I think it's all spa has this thing that cognitive biases. Okay. Can we like move past the idea that those are bad? Right. They all exist for a purpose to help us make decisions. Because if we did try to do the complete evaluation of every possible move and like objectively, which is better, it doesn't freaking matter. What matters is choosing something. Termination. Yes, exactly. My favorite talk that I ever gave a couple of years ago was uh, about cognitive biases. And, and uh, I had started collecting them. Uh, before that point, but I really spent a lot of time thinking about like why we have them at all. And, um, but yeah, I came to a similar conclusion that, you know, we have these cognitive biases because at some point they provided us with an evolutionary advantage and our fitness landscape has changed drastically as our culture has undergone a really huge transformation in the past couple of centuries. Uh, And evolution just hasn't caught up to that yet. So some of those cognitive biases may now be maladaptive, but many of them still are pretty good because here's another fun factoid I picked up doing the research for that talk. Our brain accounts for two to 3% of our body mass and 20% of our caloric consumption. Our brains run on rocket fuel, essentially. And I I first ran into this in the context of this uh, tired old meme that we use 10% of our brains. Uh, You know, there have been movies and TV shows that are predicated on this exact premise. 
And it's, it's bull. Because there is no way that evolution would saddle us with an organ that takes 20% of our caloric intake and only gives us a payback on 10% of that. <laughs> we have these giant brains because they give us advantages, but in order to make them work, and in order to make them work using ridiculous jellyfish cells, evolution has had to take a lot of shortcuts. Like what? So here's another fun little um, neurological foible that we have. Yay, foibles. Yeah. So there's this thing called a saccade. It's spelled S-A-C-C-A-D-E. And this is what happens when you when you shift the focus of your eyes from one point to a different point. We don't see the way that a camera sees. A camera has to capture all of the, the light field that's coming into it because it can't predict where we're going to look. So it has to capture the entire image. Our eyes are actually, uh, most of our vision is concentrated in a small point about six degrees across and everything else is peripheral vision. So in order to get details about something that we're interested in, we have to shift that area around quite a bit. And our eyes actually make the fastest movements that a human body is capable of. You can shift your eye from all the way on one side of your field of vision all the way to the other in something like two tenths of a second approximately. And is that like the deliberate one or the accidental one? I'm not sure I follow. The two-tenths of a second thing, is that like when you move your eyes on purpose? Um, I don't think it matters. Now we're all looking back and forth. Right. <laughs> don't try this while you're driving. Yes, please. So in that up to two-tenths of a second, the center of your, of your eye, an area called the favia centralis, is getting a lot of smeary input. And what your brain does is it actually just edits that part out. It shuts down visual processing while your eye is moving and then picks up again when your eye stops. And this is all very smoothly coordinated inside your brain. It's, we've had millions of years to make this thing work. And what it means is that every time you move your eyes, you are effectively blind. But you don't think that you're blind because your brain continues to provide you with the illusion that you're looking at a, at a continuous image. It like fills in the parts that you don't literally see, right? Right. Because it wouldn't be useful for you to look from point A to point B and then like be temporarily distracted by this wonderful smeary effect of all the pretty things going by, right? Because if you were distracted by that, you might go, ooh, and you might do it more and you might find yourself, you know, looking around for 30 seconds and making all the colors blend into each other. And then suddenly you're eaten by a lion. How? So this is one of those instances where evolution has taken a tool that doesn't work very well and kludged together something else that has its own disadvantages, but mitigates the disadvantages of the first thing well enough that you can survive long enough to have kids. There was a novel by Peter Watts called Blindsight <clears throat> that actually used this as, yes! as a major point where there was a creature that would only move when it detected that you were in the midst of a saccade. So it was effectively invisible. Yeah. Yeah, that book was excellent and so, so bleak. Dude, yes. dude, they can actually do that with AR. They can use that that saccade to shift the landscape around you to make it look like you're moving faster than you would believe if it moved while you were focusing forward. Ooh, fun. Yeah, there's been uh, experiments where people look at a uh, computer-generated page uh, of text and... As you move your eyes around, 
the computer knows where you're looking and will change bits of the text that you're not looking at. So as you're reading this page, it continues to refresh, but you never actually see it. There's another really simple example uh, experiment you can do, which is uh, look at yourself in a mirror and look yourself in one eye, then the other eye, then back to one eye, then the other eye, and you will never see your eyes move. And I ran across this wonderful quote in... Oh, but it doesn't work on your phone because there's enough of a delay. Oh. If you're using your phone as a mirror that you can't see your eyes. I haven't tried that. That's amazing. Thank you. But I ran across this wonderful uh, quote about saccades uh, in the research for the the aforementioned talk, which uh, is something to the effect of your brain not only hides information from you, but it hides the fact that anything was hidden. And this is what this was one of the things that I, I thought was important to understand about cognitive biases, which is that if you don't know they're there, they will rule your life. If you do know they're there, they will still rule your life, but you at least may have some chance of offsetting some of them. Yeah, I was I was re- watching a talk about negotiating salaries, and they were talking about the anchoring effect, where the first mm-hmm. number that comes out is, you know, bases, all the other numbers are based on that. Um, and, and they were like, the problem is with this is like, even though you know that happens to you. You do it anyway. You, you're still subject to it. So you have to be really careful about where that first number comes from. So if you can find an excuse to say some other very large number instead of like the salary you're asking for, you can mess with that. So if they say like, <laughs> what was your last salary? And you, and you can't get out of saying it. You can say, well, you know, when I was working on this last project, we served 6 million, you know, patients in, in our um, a project. And that was really helpful. And then all of a sudden you've anchored the the, the conversation at, at 6 million instead of salary you're asking for. What's fascinating to me about your comment there, your brain not only hides information, but also hides the fact that anything was hidden, is that means that hiding of the hiding has utility. It you know falls into fitness function. So what do you think is the implication of, of that, of why hiding information is useful or hiding, hiding the processing of how the knowledge was derived, if you will? Well, if I had to guess, which I do have to guess because I don't know how this happened, my guess would be that organisms that didn't hide the information at all were at a competitive disadvantage to those that did. And inferring from that, I would guess that organisms that hid that information but then were aware that they hid that information may have also gotten distracted. And so evolution probably added this second layer of, no, no, really, don't think about that. It's not good for you focus on this other stuff instead. That's just a wild guess. The, the thought that went into my head, again, just a guess, is that by passing information along, that information requires processing. And our brain already runs on rocket fuel and consumes a massive amount of energy to run. And so the more we're able to filter yes. the noise of things that don't matter, the less processing we have to do and the more efficient our brain is and the more capable it is to process information such that, you know, filtering and compression as a generalized feature is evolutionarily advantageous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like filtering out data is crucial. Compression is crucial. Forgetting Mm -hmm. is high energy and really important. Or high entropy production, rather, I think, which is weird. Yeah, I forget the source now, but I ran across uh, an essay that culminated in the phrase, uh, your brain is the shell script 
running on top of all of the data that thinks it's the data was basically making that same point about there's this massive amount of information coming in and your brain is filtering and processing most of it for you before it gets to the conscious level. Did you read the thing about how our eyes don't actually, like even our eye cells react to change rather than sending constant signals? They they only send signals that they think are relevant, which in an eye is typically something changed. Mm -hmm. And then like at every level, our neurons are constantly filtering out and sending only the bits that seem important. I did not read that, but it sounds totally plausible. Well, I should try to figure out where I read it then so I can link it in the show notes. (laughs) You know, I sort of wonder about the second layer of filtering that happens where you filter the filtering uh, and wonder if that's like useful for constructing a consistent narrative of the self of like if you had all these sort of disjointed sort of flashes of information that you know there's stuff missing a you may go looking for it and then you sort of lose the benefit of filtering it out but i also wonder if just having like having this sort of faux experience of continuous inputs and continuous selfhood is part of that well i mean we only have memories in the first place because they help us avoid things in the environment that might kill us or find things in the environment that will help us. We eat something, we throw up, we develop an association that makes us not want to eat that thing again. And that actually brings me to another really interesting cognitive bias, which is the unit completion effect. Basically, this is our tendency to eat all of a thing, even if we realize partway through that we're not being that we're not hungry anymore. And I I think it may apply in other contexts as well, but that was the or some people actually want to finish books. Uh, right, yes. <laughs> well, the sunk cost <laughs> or fallacy. podcast episodes, if you have to listen to like the end of the music at the tail end of this podcast, you might be a completionist. <laughs> Very nice. Sounds like gestalt principles, like closure principle as a motivation force. It's kind of what I'm hearing with the unit completion thing. Like I start a thing, I set an intention to do something, and it becomes like a transaction that's running that wants to finish. Okay, but why? Why did we evolve that? I'm not sure where, where exactly the idea comes from. It might be from autonomics, but there's I, I remember hearing talk of a model of of sort of this sort of thing where you start a task or where, where their input comes in and you need to decide what to do with it, where it's sort of like the system is at rest a perturbation comes in, the system is now open and needs to find closure in some way. And that closure is either from completing the task or from resolving the input into some decision. And that like the, the sort of our systems are, are built on always finding that closure in some way. Yeah. I kind of think the same thing that the, the fundamental driving force of life is closure and intention. And, you know, you talked about your eyes, Um, knowing where they were going to point next. There was already an intention behind the motivation of your eyes. We're not just passively sensing. We're reading in inputs that are relevant to some sort of problem we're solving, where it's whether it's trying to understand the space we're in to get clarity on that such that we can make a decision about how we're going to move, whether it's what do I want to do with my life? <laughs> you know, it, it goes at all these different levels of abstraction, but I, I, I feel like there's this, this pull toward this gravity of 
of home, like a homing signal almost, that is this closure of, of life. What is the narrative of my life going to be like? If I'm, if I read my gravestone, <laughs> what's it going to say on it? And so if I look at my life backwards, I've got, you know, these dreams of intention that becomes this motivating arrow that is this feedback loop that I think drives the whole sensory system. See, this is what happens when I read Zen in motorcycles. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Completion bias is probably one of those things that humans do it. And as a rule, it's probably not usually a win. But once in a while, it's a big win. Often, there's a lot of things that are like net negative for the individual, say entrepreneurship completely irrational at an individual level, military service. How is that individually a good idea? (laughs) But societally, or in the case of military service, only at the nation level, there are benefits. Because as a society, we totally benefit from entrepreneurs taking huge risks, because thousands of them just go broke and go bankrupt because they don't have health insurance. But a few of them do something amazing that changes the world. So the world as a whole benefits from people taking that risk. And completionism might be one of those things too. And in software, that totally applies because people will write open source projects and libraries and spend an irrational amount of time on them. And yet, most of those just end up in GitHub forever quietly festering. But a couple of them become incredibly useful and build communities. Way to bring it back around. Nice. <laughs> books, too. Why do people write books? Oh, I'm glad they do, but man, there's so much work. Why do people write talks? There's so much work. No, talks are over. There is a very clear definition of finished with the talk, and it has <laughs> nothing to do with the talk being the best it can be. It has to do with your time on stages now. Exactly. With no fluff, though, it's like the same material grinding it over and over again. It's like, I got to do it 50 times. So it actually gets good. Yeah, I've done my talk 10 times, so I've gotten up to version 2.7 now. (laughs) (laughs) Although I I, I did realize that wasn't following Semver for the first few, so. And then again, you get into the hard trick of defining what is better. And then you need like surveys and you need feedback from the conference attendees because pretty soon I know my material so well that I can't tell whether it's better. Is this joke funny or not? It's not funny to me anymore, but they're still laughing. Different audiences definitely play into that too. I had I had some jokes that completely didn't land in Iowa, but everyone laughed, laughed everywhere else I went except Iowa. It was like... We're on a different wavelength. <laughs> and it was it was like this dead silence thing where then I'm making jokes about nobody laughing at my jokes. <laughs> different fitness landscape. Ouch. Okay, Sam, we've talked a lot about like interesting theories about the world. But I want to know about you. What's been something that you have learned as a software engineer that you don't think you would have learned in another career? I would say the benefit of changing my mind. Because if I worked in some physical medium, right, if I designed cars, for example, or realistically, if I designed some small portion of a car, I would only have one opportunity a year to design something 
that maybe was slightly different than the thing I had done before, but it really still had to fit all of the same constraints. And maybe I would make it like two or 3% better. And I would get however many years are in my career chances to do that. Whereas in software, I can take a couple of hours and I can explore a completely differently shaped solution. And I can see whether it works or not. And even if I decide that it doesn't work, I now have the experience of having tried a different thing. And in the process of deciding that it doesn't work for the thing I wanted, I now have a better idea of some other thing that it might work better for. Wow. So like a evolutionary algorithm. Yeah, I'm, I suppose. Yeah, the, the speed of feedback on software, you don't get that when you're bridge building. Yeah, it's, it's malleable. It's relatively fast feedback. Uh, that is one of the things I really like. The other thing that I might not have really picked up uh, and had hammered into me so effectively is the importance of clarity of communication. Because code is, it's a medium of expression. And, you know, the first couple of years of my career, I was just trying to make the damn thing work at all. Uh, and then I actually went back and got a degree in computer science and some, in some parts of that helped me understand how to make things better. And some parts of that started on me on this path of understanding how to communicate with other people. And, you know, since I finished my degree, which was 11 years ago now, I really have spent a lot of time focusing on what my code says to the people who will work on it after me. The meta conversation. Yeah. Not just what are you saying, but why are you saying it? And what does that say about you and about your problem space? Mm -hmm. And um, I write comments very differently. You know, I mean, we could talk about self documenting and describing code all we want, but I find that I write comments very differently than I did when I started too. Anymore, I will write a comment that says, when you see this, you're going to think X. This is misleading because of why. <laughs> I have been known to leave comments like, Sam, you're going to want to refactor this. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you, learn, you learn to recognize what's going to be a tripwire uh -huh. and either avoid creating it or document it carefully. Right. Like, you're going to get confused about this. This is why it is that way. Yeah, the yeah. why is, is so important there. I find that's where I, a lot of my comments end up lately these days, too, is just, this is a little bit weird. This is why it's weird. So if the why changes, you know, we can change it. But for now, leave it. <laughs> right. Actually, um, I so some years ago, uh, after I spent about a year and a half flailing around with Git and not understanding what the hell was going on, I, I sort of came to a point where I, I felt like I understood what was happening. And I wrote this website saying, okay. Here's all the stuff that I banged my head on because I didn't know any better. Here's what I understand now. I hope that this will save you some of that time. And that too was uh, sort of a meta conversation about the tools that we use. And curiously, somebody emailed me the other day because they'd read that site and they were having a problem with Git that they didn't understand. They said, hey, can you help me out? And I was like, as it happens, I do have some time. So I spent a, an hour or two just yesterday helping them out. Get puzzles. I love those. Yeah, yeah. And it was funny because, like, they gave me a lot of details in email, and I was like, oh, this sounds like it might be kind of hairy. And then when we got into, finally got into a screen sharing session, and I looked at the thing, I was like, oh, 
uh, I can give you three commands to run and we can be done in five minutes, which I did not do <laughs> because that wouldn't have helped them at all. <laughs> and so instead I wound up like slowing down and talking about theory and saying, okay, this is, this is what's actually happening. This is how that came to be. This is all the information that you need to know to be able to get yourself out of this mess in the future. And writing software has first, it taught me to explain to a computer how to do a thing. And then really what it's taught me is how to help other people do that same thing. There's something I've been thinking about that to teach people to really make change in the way other people do stuff, we need to like work alongside them. Because you screen shared and you worked alongside this person long enough to understand both where you needed to go and where they were and how to show them not just how to get there, but how you know how to get there. Yeah. Modeling the problem was the challenge I had the first couple of years of my career. And once I got slightly better at that, um, the real challenge is modeling not just the problem, but how other people think of the problem and how other people think and how to get them across some of those gaps. My God, this is hard. But it's the only way I'm going to be able to scale my own skills as an engineer, right? Is if I don't have to do all the work. Yeah. And, and by scale, you don't mean AWS levels spin up a thousand. But we do mean a couple here, a couple there, to get into the dozens, and then they spread that and it's a giant pyramid scheme of knowledge. Exactly. Now everyone does get like you do. If only. <laughs> Sam, did you say you have a story about jellyfish at Living Social? <laughs> no, I didn't have a story about jellyfish at Living Social. But John brought up Groupon and Actually, I was I've sort of forgotten the context. Uh, John, what exactly was it you said about evolving Groupon? Oh, I was talking about in the context of a fitness function. Like, you, it would be incredibly difficult to build a fitness function that would allow an evolutionary algorithm to evolve, you know, Groupon.com. It would probably be more work to build that than it would be to just spend a couple of years building Groupon.com. Yeah. Which, as an aside, makes me really appreciate the way that the universe works and how it's put together out of relatively simple parts. And yet it's produced all this interesting, complex behavior. But one other interesting thing that happens in evolution is this idea of mimicry. One organism will evolve an interesting defense mechanism. For example, we have yellow jackets, which are really, they're just the assholes of the insect world. But they advertise themselves as assholes. They have this bright yellow and black stripes. And when you see one, you know it's coming. There are also other insects that look like yellow jackets, but they're relatively benign. And they're just taking advantage of the fact that nobody wants to fuck with a yellow jacket. <laughs> I'm not saying this is exactly the parallel. I'm just saying that uh, mimicry is an, is an interesting thing to talk about in its own right. And that leads into the, the living social story, which was that I went to Living Social when there, it was, uh, there were really interesting things happening there, and they had been hiring like everybody you ever heard of in the Ruby community. And I was like, wow, that's, there's something happening. I want to go and check that out. And I was lucky enough to be hired on. And it was a great experience. But the funny part was my very first day, I was in the Washington, D.C. home office, and uh, we started a uh, orientation session at nine o'clock. And it was me and like two other software developers and then 20 salespeople. And the person doing the training 
as I recall, the very first thing they did to start the training was they said, okay, who would like to take a stab at explaining what we do without using the word Groupon? <laughs> and I just about lost it. Was Living Social a competitor to Groupon? I'm sorry. Yes, it was. They now are owned by Groupon. Breakers. Okay. So maybe that was only funny to me. <laughs> well, no, it, it does say how... As humans, we can really only understand things in terms of things we already know. Yes, this is true. It's really hard to get across a new abstraction, but yet it's really hard to know how hard that is, too, when you already understand the thing. Yeah. I ran across something on Twitter last week. Somebody was saying, even reading is just talking, but for people who aren't in the room. <laughs> what you were saying about abstraction, I think, is is like the, the key difficulty of... Well, any communication, but I think teaching in particular, because that like figuring out where the disconnect is and how to connect the abstraction to something that the um, student already knows so that they can start incorporating it is probably one of the hardest parts. Like Sam, earlier you were talking about modeling the problem um, was your first couple of years, and then you switched to modeling how others think about the problem and this process of learning how to communicate by seeing the delta between the model in your head and in other people's heads. Ooh, ooh, ooh. That reminds me of the theory of mind, which is one of my favorite psychological concepts, which is like the ability to conceive that someone else has different thoughts than you do. And it's something humans develop, I think, around age three or four, but before that, they don't really have it. And it's, it's just the ability to think, this other person has this other way of looking at the world. They have facts that I don't have and vice versa. And it's something that we, that just develops in humans at some point, but is not common. Uh, I think in the most of the other animals. Yeah. There's a really interesting aspect or effect of that, which is that you can tell exactly when uh, your kid has started to develop theory of mind because they start lying to you. <laughs> <laughs> Because without theory of mind, there's no point in lying, right? Because everybody knows the same thing. Oh, that's probably also where we start to feel alone. Wow, that's pretty profound. Sorry, I'm bringing all the sad things today, or at least two, which is like two more than I usually do. I've been thinking a lot about the same things, though, of just thinking about loneliness and connection. And, you know, I mean, what we're essentially talking about, too, parallels with all my research in my book, Idea Flow, right? I mean, it's taking an idea from one person's head and getting it into another person's head. And like, learning a theory of mind where someone is at to communicate. But the essence of that communication is connection. And when we find ourselves in an ability to like we can't understand where people are at different from ourselves and we can't get ideas across and we have something we're trying to express and we feel like people can't hear us, don't understand us. We put on a, a shell that we end up, you know, hiding under because it's, you know, the social thing that you're supposed to do. All of that just creates this disconnection from being able to communicate and be heard and sets that loneliness in. Yeah. And while we're on the topic of depressing things, I think this is one of the things that frustrates me so much about the current state of uh, American politics is that so much of the, I don't even want to say discourse, so much of the, so many of the words that are flowing around really just illustrate how people are 
just leaning on their cognitive biases, on those in-group, out-group distinctions, on basically doing anything that they can to avoid having to think about other people as people. Thinking is expensive. Rocket fuel. Exactly. There's, I mean, there's a totally reasonable evolutionary basis for it, but it's, you know, it's playing out in a harmful way right now. It's a lot of work to really model a person. But it's so worth it. At the same time, I think the concept of a fitness landscape, if we think of ourselves as a bounded context that's that's making these decisions, and each one of us has some fitness function that we're optimizing for, we can kind of look at the different people in the world that are hurting and trying to survive. They're under the pressure of their social tribes. They're seeing the world the way that they're seeing it. They're in pain. They're freaked out. And they're all trying to optimize their fitness functions. And I think recognizing that our brains are wired that way to compress these things, to, to try and make sense and, you know, justify the, the decisions we've made, the mountain we've decided to climb because it's too scary to go down another side to recognize that a lot of people get stuck in these patterns and we're all just, humans trying to survive. And it's unfortunate that these things are happening. But at the same time, being aware of it creates this opportunity to take a step back and look at, okay, what should we be optimizing for? You know, we've, we talked about this idea of scale that meant something very different than scaling up a bunch of servers, right? We're talking about scale in terms of scale of, of wisdom, really. And if you think about teaching and our opportunity to contribute and what scale means in that context, what generativity means in that, in that context, we've all individually got this opportunity to explore these different paths, to explore these different peaks. And once we get to the top of a mountain, we can go, Hey, I can look down at the valleys and all these other people around me and where they're at. And I can take the wisdom that I learned on this mountain. And I can go and figure out how to, how to share that wisdom with others. I can build a mental model of where they're at and where I'm at and try and figure out how to get the ideas in my head into other people's heads so we can all share that wisdom. And I, I think ultimately that awareness of where we want to go both as individuals and as a community, learning how to cooperate toward wisdom learning how to shift our fitness functions to surviving and thriving as an individual, but also thriving as a community. Because having a baseline of surviving in the world is, is kind of a sucky low bar. I want to thrive and I want other people to be able to thrive too. I mean, that, that I think is a good definition that we can agree on for a better place is let's try and move toward thriving as a community, as a global world. Yeah, I think that's really great. And I especially like that it really ties in well with the way that we evolved as a social species in the first place, which is that, you know, groups of humans do better than a single human does on their own. And that's generally true of most primates. I do want to point out that uh, there is one danger in the path that you described, which is that you get to the point where you are thriving and you look at the, at other people who aren't. And some people get there and they decide that paternalism is the way to go. I know how I got here. And so now I know what's best for you. And I'm going to make you do that. Different fitness landscape. 
I just want to point out that that's a trap that a lot of people do fall into when they get there. Yeah. Or people want for their children, their own definition of success. Yes. So it's like principles of freedom and following your own arrow need to be part of you know the way we look at things of of I think this general concept of bounded context if I am a bounded context that having a bounded context means that I get to have freedom over all the things that are inside my bounded context kind of thing maybe as a first principle I mean there's principles that we live by and then there's like the meta principles of my principle is you get to choose your own principle and I think we equate those sometimes we equate values that are useful for making decisions in the current problem space with meta values about it's important to me that you be able to find your values and that I respect those. And we don't have a different word for that. And politically, I think that gets us confused because some people are like, the country should be like this. And I have the values that it should be a place where you can get a manufacturing job and work hard and that's going to be enough. Whereas at another level, other people have a principle of, I want this country to be a place where people can make it what they want it to be. Yeah, it's like the difference between having a very concrete principle that's useful on a particular day and having a principle that you get to choose your own principle. So actually, this comes back to one of the things that I learned in uh, my trip through college. My Actually, my third trip through college. My first two were miserable failures because I didn't know I had ADD. <laughs> if you know how your brain works, you can work with it. Yes, exactly. One of the most impactful courses that I took was actually a 100-level writing course that uh, really talked about rhetoric. And I know I've plugged this book before, probably on this very podcast. It's called uh, Everything's an Argument. But the mind-blowing thing I took away from this book was that when people say things, they are saying those things for reasons. And there are probably reasons for those reasons as well. So interacting with people just on the basis of the things that they are saying may not be the most effective thing that you can do to get what you want or to change somebody else's mind or to learn something that will change your own mind. Interacting, you know, just at the level of what somebody is saying, you know, pick your own example means that you're engaging with them on their terms and agreeing to conditions of a conversation that may or may not work out for anybody. But if you can understand like what value somebody has that is causing them to make that statement, then maybe you can get somewhere. Is it possible, you think, to find some common ground of principles? So like there's a difference between sharing all our first principles and having some foundational shared principles that we can agree upon. Yeah. Do you think it's possible to have a shared foundation? I think it's desirable. Um, I think it can be possible. I was thinking about this the other day in terms of there are certain people, there are many people on Twitter, for example, that I just cannot have a conversation with because we don't start from the same place of all people deserve the same rights. For example, if we can't agree on that axiom, none of the rest of our conversation is going to get anywhere. It's amazing to me that this is even a conversation that we're having. We're having a conversation about the meta conversation of other conversations. And at a meta level, Janelle is aware that we're having this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> it's meta all the way down. 
So back to jellyfish. Must we? And local maximums. We talked about local maxima, right? Yes, we did. That's good, because we wanted to tell you about this new podcast called The Local Maximum. It's hosted by Max Sklar, who is a machine learning engineer at Foursquare. He covers a lot of fascinating topics, AI, building better products, and the latest technology news from his unique perspective. Max interviews engineers, entrepreneurs, and creators of all types, with half of the guests being successful women in software and tech. Subscribe to the Local Maximum Podcast wherever you listen. Flawless. Remember that not every Local Maxima is a good place to be. Take, for instance, jellyfish. They've clearly gotten as far as they're going to go in their direction of evolution, and as a result, many people get stung. (laughs) Oh my gosh, Jess, you are so hilarious, I swear. (laughs) I kind of think all of us share the superpower with Sam that that is totally something we have in common, that we can make a connection between (laughs) disparate things, and, and that we enjoy that, and that that's one of the things that like binds us as a group indeed that's what makes these conversations so much fun yes definitely i'm really glad that we are now like an hour and a half later we're at this place where we can understand what i said about i sometimes wonder if we'd be better at treating people as individuals if we weren't still stuck (laughs) using jellyfish signaling mechanisms because i was thinking like imagine how much better we'd be at treating people as individuals if we had more computational power to work with if we weren't stuck with something that evolution decided was good enough. Bam. That is a great place to end it. So for our listeners, we're not going to do reflections today. If you want to hear our reflections, hit rewind and listen to the episode again. Or pay any amount of money to our Patreon at patreon.com slash greater than code, which will get you an invite to our private Slack channel, which will allow you to have conversations with all of us and the other wonderful people in this community at any time. And we can all reflect together. Yeah, we actually do answer questions in there and we get really happy about it. Yeah, we have some great conversations in there. It's totally worthwhile. Yeah. Thank you for joining. Sam, thank you for allowing us to make you our guest today. And now you get the benefit of having checked off the task of having done your own podcast and you never have to anticipate it again (laughs) why thank you this actually has been a lot of fun 